Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So Brittany didn't know what I was preaching about today, and I didn't know what she was going to be singing about, but actually she's challenged us on a level that's very important for us to think about, especially in relation to what I'm about to share with you from God's Word, because really this is a message about what you and I do when it comes to our relationship with God, and how were we created, and what were we created for, and and why did God make us, and why did Jesus die for us, and ultimately it's all about that we worship Him. And she laid out in a song the fact that there are many imitations out there. There are many things out there that look real but aren't. That look like they should be soul-satisfying, things that can deliver us, things that can prosper us, things that can free us, things that really make us content and satisfied, but they absolutely don't. They fall short. They're like fool's gold. Not the real thing. And the thing is, is if you realize that God is the real thing and absolutely what you need more than anything else, as the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today says, then you'll see how satisfied your soul can be. And when you see how beautiful He is and how worthy He is, then you can't help but worship Him if you see how worthy Christ is. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that on one hand is the most beautiful passage of scripture and on the other hand it's a real convicting challenge and call for us to make sure that we're worshiping what's really worthy because we all worship whatever we think is worthy whatever you think is worthwhile worshiping you'll give your time and attention you'll spend your money on it you'll tell everybody about it you'll invest all your time you can't help but think about it if that's what you think is worthy it might be your favorite ball team. It might be the, the, the person that won the last race. It might be somebody, that you, a, a purchase that you've made, some latest, greatest electronic gadget. Whatever it might be. Maybe it's a person that you've just fallen in love with. And, and you just can't help but thinking about them, talking about them, telling other people about them, dreaming about them, wanting to spend time with them. Those are all acts of worship. All of those things are all acts of worship. You'll order your life, you'll spend your money, you'll arrange your calendar around the things that you think are worthy and you'll worship those things and you'll show it with your calendar and with your checkbook. We're called in this passage to make sure that we see that it's the worthiness of our God that He's worth worshiping and giving everything that we have to Him. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Now, we started this fall going through the book of Revelation. We're going to finish up today, and it kind of is fitting with the Thanksgiving season as we culminate all of our our gratefulness and giving thanks and just kind of giving that special focus during this season. But we're going to be focusing on today this, this aspect of giving God the glory, giving Him the worship that He deserves because He's worthy. He's worthy. And we're going to see a couple ways that He really is worthy of our worship and how we can actually go about worshiping Him. And see, this is really critical because you you think, well, I could never sing or play the guitar like that. I could never give money like that. I can't even show up at church every Sunday like some people do. Some of us are paid to be here every Sunday, so let's, you know, get that out of the way. Just, okay. But, you know, I, I could never measure up to what other people do, how spiritual, how godly, how religious they seem. 
And I want you to understand something that according to Revelation chapter four and chapter five, it's not about how religious you look or how busy you are or how wealthy your gifts are or how spiritual you look. It's about surrender. That's at the heart of worship. It's surrender. It's about giving yourself and surrendering to Jesus. That's what worship is all about. And that's why worship is so hard. It's not about whether or not you can carry a tune or how often, how often you show up at a religious service. It's about are you willing to surrender to Jesus who surrendered everything for you. He's worthy of our worship. So in Revelation chapter 4, we're, we've been going through the opening of Revelation. We've seen the, the letters that Jesus wrote to the church, the, the love letters, how he challenged them to focus on him and, and make sure that he was the, 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 the focus of their lives, the priority of their lives, that his, their love for him was their greatest thing that they would spend their time doing. And, and here in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we're seeing what that kind of love looks like in the throne room of heaven as the creatures there worship God and give him the glory and honor that he deserves. So would you listen carefully? This is on page 1030, Revelation chapter four, verse one. <clears throat> After this, John writes, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven and with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance as an angel, as an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. These two chapters form one scene. And it's a very dramatic scene as John, who's been standing in the outer courts of the throne of God, uh, the, the temple of God where the lampstands are, he's been receiving these, these letters from Jesus and sending them to the churches, and he's in the presence of God, but now a door has swung open, and he's able to step, so to speak, into another dimension in the Spirit, and he's brought into the very presence of God, into the holiest of holies, the, the most holy place, the very presence of God. And there he is standing before God in his throne. And he begins to describe in chapter 4 what he's seeing. And the thing is, is that John is speechless. He, he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to describe it. And so he's trying to the best he can. And he uses imagery from earth to help us sense how glorious, how magnificent, how awe-inspiring this scene is to actually be in the presence of God. It says that he, first off, he sees a big throne, a chair that a king would rule from, and it's glorious. It's so bright. It's so bright with light flashing, lightning blaring, and, and thunder sounding, and all of this going forth, flashes of light, different colors radiating from it. It's so brilliant. It's so awe-inspiring that he can't even see the person sitting there on the throne. And yet, uh, the Bible tells us that 
If anyone were to look upon the face of God, he's so awe-inspiring, so terrifying, it would strike us dead. And so there's God clothed with this glorious splendor and majesty, this light radiating out from him. And John says it looks like a jasper stone, which is like a diamond or an opal, just very brilliant and multifaceted, sparkling, shining, brilliant in every way. It's like a carnelian stone, which is a, a deep reddish color. And then later on, he's going to say that there was so much light emanating from the throne, it's like a halo or a rainbow circling the throne. And that kind of had a greenish emerald kind of color. And so here's God in all his glory and majesty and this light coming forth and all this thunder and all this lightning and, and all this rumbling and there's fire around the throne and these different Torches representing the presence of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, and smoke is filling all of us. And so John is just overwhelmed with this scene as he's looking at the sights and sounds of it all. But then it's the size of the place that's so incredibly inspiring as well because he says that as he looks out, this throne is standing and it's situated on a, a pavement or a firmament, a, an open expanse that's like standing on the seashore by yourself and you go right up against the waves and you just look all the way out to the horizon, this big open area like the, like the ocean, a sea. It's so large, it's so immense in his mind. All of this seems so strange, so incredibly overwhelming to John as he's witnessing God seated on this throne. But it's not only the the size of it all and the sights of it all, the sounds of it all that's so overwhelming to John, there's also these servants of God that are there as well. And and there's two groups described. There's a group of, of people that are called elders and they're seated on thrones, there's 24 of them, and they surround the throne, and they're kind of like a, a heavenly court, a divine court, like, like a king or a queen, a, a monarch having advisors seated around them and as they discuss the affairs of state. And so this is like the heavenly court around the throne. Now, there's a lot of debate. Who, who are these elders? Are they angels? That's a possibility. They also may be humans, some from the Old Testament, some from the New Testament, and they're there worshiping God and they're honoring him. They're wearing crowns, they're clothed in white. Later on it says that they have bowls that have incense, very fragrance, describing the the prayers of the saints. And there's a harp, a lyre, that's like a guitar that they're playing to to worship God and and honor him in that way. And, And so they're there worshiping God and honoring him, leading the worship of God in that presence, these 24 elders. I think they're humans myself. But then there's these four creatures. They're, they're living beings. And they're, they're angels, but they're very unusual because they have six wings. That's pretty strange. And they're covered with eyes, and that's very strange. And, and they have different kinds of faces. And they're closest to the Lord, and they're, they're guarding his glory You just get the idea that they're just kind of circling the throne, honoring him, declaring how holy God is, giving him glory. One one of these beings has a face that that looks like a lion, and another looks like an an ox, a a young bull. Another has the face of a a man, and the last one has a face like a, a flying eagle. 
And these creatures are just surrounding the throne, guarding the glory of God, giving praise to his name. Their, their strangeness is, is shocking. It's awe-inspiring. And it's just overwhelming to John as he watches it. And they're worshiping him and declaring the glory of the one who's seated on the throne. It says that when they start worshiping him, those four creatures, that the elders get up out of their seats and they bow down before the Lord and they actually take their crowns off and lay them at the feet of the one seated on the throne. It's an act of submission and surrender to him. In verse 11 of chapter four, we see why they're doing this. And this is what you and I need to learn today. The reason that these angels, these elders, are glorifying God and they're worshiping him is because he's the creator. He is the one who has made everything that there is. Would you read verse 11 with me, please? Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You and I are called to worship God, to give him the the glory that he he is worthy of. He is worthy of our worship. Why? Because he's our creator. He rules over us. He is our sovereign. He is the one who is in charge, not the governments of this world, not the authorities of this world. He is the one who is the king of all, and he is receiving the glory and honor that he deserves because he is the creator. The thing that's very interesting in verse 11, the words that the the creatures and the elders are saying there, they're the words, they are not liturgical words. They are not religious words. They're actually political words. They are words that were said to the emperor. They were the words that the emperor demanded people say to him. The emperor at the end of the, the first century, Emperor Domitian, He declared that you need to call me your Lord and God. You need to address me that way because I'm the emperor. And he demanded during the time that John is writing the revelation that people would worship him. And what was so unusual about his demand was that people did worship the previous emperors but only after they were dead. He was the first one to say, well, I'm still alive, I'm a God and you need to worship me. You need to surrender to me. And so when he says, you know, when they declare to God who's sitting on the throne, worthy are you, the people declared that to the emperor. And you are our Lord and God. They declared that to the emperor, but God is saying, no, I'm the only one worthy of that. Why? Because I'm the one who created everything. Your emperor is just a man. He may govern the empire, but he's just a human being. In fact, I created him. I sustained his life. He lives today because I allow his heart to keep beating. I give breath to fill his lungs. I animate his mind. I make him live. I'm the one who's created all these things. I sustain all these things. If I take my breath away, if I cause your heart to stop beating, if I make your brain shut down, you cease to exist. You die. I'm the one that sustains you. I'm the one that gives you life. I've created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created and are sustained. The angels that are worshiping before the Lord, the elders that are worshiping before the Lord, declare that and recognize that, and they give him the honor and glory that he's due. 
Here's a word for us today. No matter how small and insignificant you may feel, no matter how weak you may feel, how powerless you may feel against the forces of evil in our world and the powers that are arrayed against us as, as a church and as individual Christians, as families, remember that your God still sits on the throne. He rules over all. And because he rules over all, he's worthy of our worship because he is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is the sovereign Lord over the entire universe and we must surrender to him because he's worthy of our worship. He's worth worshiping. So let's worship him. The thing that is really wonderful and cool about this passage is that it gets even more exciting because you think chapter four is beautiful all the sights and sounds and colors there god getting his glory and people surrendering to him and and remembering how he is our sovereign king and we surrender to his authority it gets even more exciting when we look in chapter five John says, as it continues to unfold, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne that he was holding a scroll. A scroll was like an ancient book, only instead of leaves that are bound together in a cover, with a cover, it was a long roll of parchment which was made of animal skin or, or papyri which is made from plant fiber. They would make this paper-like product and they would roll it out and they would trim it and they would weave the different layers of the plant fibers together and they'd press it and dry it and it would make a large sheet, a large roll. And some of these scrolls are nearly 30 feet long. Uh, excuse me, 30 yards long, pardon me. So really, really long. And they would write, and they would write histories, and they would write all kinds of stories, and they would write deeds to different properties and financial transactions and wills and testaments, like that. And this person that's sitting on the throne, Almighty God in his glory, he's holding a scroll that's very much like that. Only it's not just written on one side, it's written inside and out. It's written on both sides. It's, it's complete. It, it has the full story of of what the future holds, of the, of the judgment that he's going to declare upon planet Earth. It's about how he's going to reveal his salvation to all the human race through Jesus Christ, how he is God and how he's going to establish his kingdom over all the earth, how everything that's wrong is going to be made right, how everything that's broken is going to be mended. That's what's inside that scroll. But at this point in time, the scroll is secret. You can't just... Read it. There's not a Freedom of Information Act that means that you get to go up and just open the scroll and read it any time you want to. It's sealed. And that just simply meant that there were strings, straps that were wrapped around the scroll to keep it shut. And there were little blobs. That's an official theological term there. A little blob of clay or wax or something like that that were pressed down upon that string. And maybe they would even take a, if it was a person of authority that were giving it, they'd take a signet ring with a little seal that was stamped on and they would press it into that clay or that wax and indicate that you can't open the scroll unless you have the proper authority to do so. Unless you're the owner of the scroll. Unless this scroll was written for you, you can't open it. And so John sees this scroll sitting in the hand of the one who's sitting on the throne, Almighty God's scroll. And it says in verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy? He asked this question. Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is the one that's going to open the scroll and read it to reveal the plan of God for the rest of the human race for the rest of time? 
Who's going to reveal the, the plan of God to bring salvation? Who's going to reveal the plan of God to execute judgment against evil? Who's going to reveal God's plan for making everything that's broken and wrong and restore it and make it new? Who's going to reveal that? Who has the authority to open the scroll and read it? And in verse 3, one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, it says this, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open, was able to open the scroll and look into it. Nobody. There's nobody up in heaven. None of the creatures in heaven. None of the angels are worthy. None of the elders. None of the four living creatures. None of the angels that serve there are worthy. None of the saints who have died and gone before. None of them are worthy. How about people living on earth right now? Are any of them worthy? Could Billy Graham open it? No. What about Mother Teresa? How about her? No. What about some other holy person, that grandmother that prayed for you every day? What about that godly Sunday school teacher that you had? Are they worthy? And the answer is no. There's not anybody on planet earth that's worthy. The pope's not worthy. The priest is not worthy. The pastor's not worthy. The rabbi's not worthy. The holy man, the guru, nobody is worthy to open the scroll. No one at any point in time on, human, on the face of the earth is worthy to open the scroll. None of them. None of the men, none of the women. What about those that have already died that are in the grave? Are any of them worthy? No, none of them are worthy either. No one in the demonic realm is worthy. Those under the earth, none of them are worthy. There's nobody. Now, do you grasp the gravity of this situation? And if that scroll really contains the plan of God for the human race, how everything that's broken gets made right and how all evil is finally vanquished, and how every oppressor is overthrown, if that's, if that's what's contained in that scroll and there's nobody that can open it, what does that mean? We are all lost. There's no hope. And that's why in verse 5, rather verse 4, John says, I began to weep loudly. And the idea here is that I am sobbing uncontrollably. I am wailing. I am mourning. It's the deepest level, the most gut-wrenching sorrow that you could ever experience. The tears and the crying and the sobbing that would come with that. A loved one unexpectedly passes away. A terrible, terrible, terrible financial loss that bankrupts you. The hurt that someone has inflicted upon you and the wailing and the grief that comes. That's what John is feeling here. It's, it is a traumatic, traumatic sense of loss. Do you feel that? I wept loudly. For there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Morgan's paraphrase, stop crying. Quit your, wipe your tears. Stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And all of a sudden there's John. He's been sobbing, he's been crying, he's exhausted from the crying that he's been going through. 
and he's been comforted by one of the elders that's surrounding the throne. The elders often function as worshipers and interpreters of what John is seeing in Revelation. Stop crying because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered and he is worthy to open the scroll. There is somebody that can open the scroll. There is somebody that can read and execute the plan of God to make everything broken, mended, and to overturn evil and to restore everything the way it should be and to bring salvation and judgment as it was intended to make all things that are wrong right. There is somebody, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David. These two terms, two titles of the Lord, the line of the tribe of Judah comes all the way from the earliest pages of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 49. It's said that a descendant of the tribe of Judah would be like a lion cub that would pounce upon its enemies and rip them to shreds and, and completely destroy the enemies of God in that way. And the Jewish scholars down through the centuries, the rabbis and teachers understood that very clearly that was a prophecy of the Messiah. He would be like a lion in his ferocity and his courage and his nobility in his strength fighting against the enemies of God like a, like a, a, a strong, mighty lion, noble lion. But then he uses this little phrase, the root of David, which is, sounds like you know, big strong lion and now you're talking about a little sapling. What are you talking about there? And that's a, a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, it tells about how God's plan is to raise up a new leader, the Messiah, a new king for Israel, and he would be a descendant of David. And if you could just imagine David as this old towering tree that's ready to fall down, there's this little shoot that starts growing out the side, a little limb, a little branch that's growing out the side of the tree or coming up from the roots of the tree. And when you think all is lost and David is no more, guess what? God is raising up a new growth, a new tree, a new life, a new tree to take the place of David, a, a second David, a new David. It's a picture of the Messiah. Both the imagery of the lion and the imagery of this, this shoot, this root of David both passages in Genesis chapter 49 and Isaiah chapter 11 both show that this Messiah figure, whether he's called a lion or whether he's called a, a limb or a, a, a root, they both are conquering heroes. They both are warriors that fight against the enemy. They both stand against the enemies of God and defeat them. And the Jewish people took both, image, both symbols, both pictures of the Messiah and they found great hope. A, a lion that will attack our enemies and prevail. Conquer them. A tree that will remain standing no matter any of the oppression and onslaughts that we face from our enemies. A tree that will always bring life and strength and health and stability to us. They saw both of those images as being something that would give them great hope in thinking about the Messiah who has come. And so John, as he's sitting there listening to the elder, the elder says, guess what? That lion... That tree, it's come. He's here. The Messiah is here. He is worthy, worthy to open the scroll, worthy to put into action and execute what God has revealed and written down in the scroll for bringing justice to this broken world. But then you look at verse 6. And shock of shocks, what does John see? Not a lion, not a towering tree but a lamb, and not just a lamb, 
but a lamb that looked like it had been killed. Slaughtered. That means it had its throat slit. Offered as a sacrifice. Cut between the collarbones. Just right across the throat. Bled out. John is looking there and in seeing a, instead of seeing a ferocious lion, instead of seeing a towering tree, he sees, he sees this lamb who's been slaughtered. And right away, he knows, like you and I should know, that this is a reminder that this is the Messiah who, yes, is the mighty warrior. Yes, who will conquer our enemies. Yes, who will always be there to, to lead and protect and preserve his people. But to do that, he had to be the lamb offered as a sacrifice. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world like the Passover lamb did during the Exodus. To provide a covering, protection, salvation for the people that are under the judgment of God and the wrath of God. The lamb did that through his death. John says, I saw a lamb standing in the midst of the throne. So, so here's the throne, there are the four creatures, here are the elders surrounding the throne, but right there, right beside the throne, right beside the, the almighty God, the sovereign who created and rules the entire universe, right there beside him is that lamb standing, the one who's still standing even though it looked like he was slain. He had died, but he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. He's standing. He's risen. But the emphasis is on this. He is conquered because he died. He died as our sacrifice. He died in our place. He surrendered himself as a willing sacrifice so we could be saved. Through his death, he defeated the devil. Through his death... He defeated our sin and shame. Through his death, he defeated death so we could live forever. The lamb has conquered. The lamb that was slaughtered. The lamb that died. Now John goes further because you know, he's expecting to see a lion, but he sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, he sees a slain, slaughtered lamb, sacrificed lamb. But not just a sacrificed lamb, the, the, the imagery shifts even more. This vision that John is having. Because he says... This lamb, don't think about that cute little cuddly lamb that you see in all the Bible school pictures. You know, little stuffed animal kind of lamb. Think of a big powerful ram, a male lamb, because look what it says. It says it, he had seven horns. Horn is a symbol of power, and so here's this mighty lamb, this ram that's going to battle all the other sheep and exert dominance, fight against the predators and all that. And so, yes, there's this weakness. Yes, there's this voluntarily, voluntary uh, vulnerability and humility and sacrifice and suffering. He goes through all that, but he comes out of all that, and he's victorious, and he's powerful, and he's Lord over all. He's the mighty, the mighty warrior God that defends us. He's, he's got these seven horns, and he's covered with seven eyes. Again, he knows everything. He sees everything. And it says that in verse 7 that he went and he took that scroll. He took it for himself. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And, and so again, two components of what worship is. It's, it's praise to God and it's prayer. And as they're, they're doing that, it says in verse 9 that there's a new song that they sang. And listen to the song. Were there you to take the scroll? Who was worthy? That was the question. 
Who's worthy? Nobody is worthy. But the lion is worthy. The root of David is worthy. This lamb that was slaughtered, he's worthy. And so they declare that. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. You conquered death. You died our death. And you were raised. You're still standing. You were slain. You took our place. You died the death we deserved to die. You took our place. And you were slain. And by your blood, by your sacrifice, you ransomed a people to God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You paid a price. You made a purchase. And the imagery that, that the angels are saying here, the elders and these four living creatures are saying as they worship Jesus and worship the lamb, they're, they're saying, look, you, you went to the slave market of sin and you bought us out of it. You, you paid a price. And the price you paid was your own blood, your death. And you paid that price and you set us free because the language that he's using, he's talking about buying POWs, prisoners of war that have been sold into slavery after being captured by the enemy. And so now you've bought them and they've become your slaves. You set them free from the tyranny of their sin and shame and their wrath and the judgment that they deserve. You set them free from all that and you've, you've conquered sin just as you've conquered death. And you've made them your very own. They belong to you now. And you did this, you rescued them out of every tribe, every language, every nation, every people. And those four words there just kind of bring across the idea of a completeness. A completeness that no matter what tribe, what language, what group, what nation, what race you come from, there will be people out of that nation, out of that language, out of that people group, out of that race, out of that tribe, people will be before the Lord and worshiping Him and honoring Him. So you and I so often, I'll just say this, we, we kind of have this superior attitude and we think that we're better because, you know, maybe it's because we're white or because we're Americans or because we're whatever. And we, we just say that, you know, we're, we're middle class and, you know, we're better than those, those people that are with Al-Qaeda. Or we're better than those people that live over there, you know, under that communist government or that Muslim country or those, those atheists, or those Buddhists, or those Hindus that live in Southeast Asia. And we're superior to them because we're the ones that are really saved. And Jesus is saying here, through this passage, the Lord is saying, no, you, you need to understand that my plan is I'm gonna be saving people from all different groups, not just yours. There's, there's a universality of it. Not that everybody is gonna get saved, but there will be people from every place. There will be people from every language and tribe and nation and people group. What brought that salvation about? Jesus bought them through his blood. His blood is that powerful. His death was that powerful to set us free. And so in this passage, he's, he's saying you're worthy to receive the glory. You're worthy. Why? Because you died and you conquered death. You're still standing. You died and you conquered our sin. You set us free. You bought us and you made us our own, your own property. We belong to you no matter where we came from, no matter how we messed up our lives. You set us free and you made us your very own. And not only that, but you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign forever and ever. You see, in Jesus' agenda, Jesus does not belong to any political party. None. There may be times where certain political parties line up with his agenda, 
But we're fools if we say, that, you know, well, I'm going to be a Democrat or I'm going to be a Republican or I'm going to be a communist or a socialist or whatever because that makes the most sense. No, I want to follow Jesus and I line up with his agenda. And wherever these other parties line up with the agenda of Jesus, then that, I can support that. Jesus is saying here, he's establishing, the angels are declaring, Jesus is setting up his own kingdom. And he's taking these people that he's rescued out of every nation and language group and made them his people. They're no longer his slaves, but they're his, they're his princes and princesses. They belong to his kingdom. And not only are they members of his, fam- his royal family, but they are, they are priests serving him and representing him to others. And, and not only that, but they're going to rule with Jesus when his kingdom is finally established here on earth. This is the political agenda of Jesus is to set up his kingdom. That's what he's doing in the world today. He conquered the death. He conquered our sin. He conquered the devil and the kingdoms of this world that are animated by the devil. And really, every kingdom is in one way or another. John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and around the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John is, is looking in here and he sees the Lamb and he sees the elders and the, the four living creatures and they're worshiping Jesus and they're honoring him and that's exciting as it is. But then he hears this noise around him and he looks around and he sees thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands, myriads and myriads. A myriad technically is 10,000. It was the largest number in ancient Greek that you could write out you know, in words. Largest number they had, 10,000, a myriad. So he's saying there are myriads of myriads. Ten thousands of ten thousands. And on top of that, he says there's thousands of thousands. And all he's trying to say here is an innumerable host of angelic beings. I couldn't count how many there were. Billions upon billions. An infinite number of angels surrounding us. Here we are at the throne, worshiping the Lamb, honoring Him. But beyond us, everybody else, all the other angels are worshiping Him as well. Worthy are you the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All the things that you and I would give to the people who are high and mighty and all-powerful and most important, the celebrities, the VIPs, the all-stars, the latest and the greatest, the people that we hold up in highest honor and esteem in our world, all that belongs to Jesus. All of it. The Nobel Prize, the Oscar, the most valuable player, the platinum records, the everything else that you could imagine. You think, oh, wow, how great they are. Jesus is greater. He is the true celebrity of the universe. Why? Because he died. And he rose. And he rules over all. He conquered every enemy we face. He's worthy to receive all the praise. And just when you think it can't get any louder and any more exciting there in the throne room of heaven as they worship Jesus, it gets even greater. It crescendos even louder. And in verse 13 we read, 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them. Every being, every creature with intelligence, they're worshiping, they're honoring, and they're saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And to that, the four living creatures say, Amen. And the 24 elders, they bow down and they worship. Just putting a period at the end of all that. Everything in the entire universe is worshiping Christ and honoring Him, whether they're for Him or against Him, because every knee will bow to Him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here we have the one seated on the throne and the Lamb right beside Him, Father and Son, both being worshipped, both being honored, both being glorified. They take that worship because they both are worthy. They are one God. The Spirit is surrounding the throne those fires that we saw earlier, they all deserve the glory because they rule over all. We worship God because he's our sovereign. He created everything that there is. He rules over everything because he sustains everything. He can take their breath away and they die. But we worship our lamb, our savior, because he gave his life and he conquered through his death and his resurrection every enemy we face. He's worthy of our worship. So the question we have to ask is, so what? Oh, that's great. I should worship. I should worship Jesus. He conquered. I should worship God. He's the creator. How? What are we supposed to do? What does this worship look like? Is it just singing? Is it just praying? Is it just showing up at church? Is it just tolerating a, a service with, you know, with my family on a holiday? Or is there something more to worship? And I think at the heart of it all, there is something more. Because at the heart of worship is surrender. The picture I see is at the end of verse chapter four where it talks about the elders bowing down and taking the crown and surrendering. That was, that was what happened when the emperor would visit a territory where he'd installed the governors and kings to rule over that, that region for him. And they would come, and as an act of honor, of an act of worship and loyalty and allegiance, they would bow down before the king, and they would actually take their crown and say, this is your crown. They would put the crown at the feet of the emperor. I rule at your pleasure. I submit to you. I pay homage to you. I yield to you. At the heart of worship is surrender. Lord, I am yours. You made me. You saved me. I belong to you. And I surrender to you. But we have to ask, what does that look like? What does surrendering look like in daily life? Let me just throw out a couple ideas here at the end. I think as a believer... One way that it certainly shows up is in the area of obedience when we're tempted. When we're tempted, am I going to obey God or not? Am I going to serve myself or serve other people or am I going to do God's will? When we're at that crossroads, am I going to do what God wants or not? In that moment, it's an act of worship when I say, God, I'll do your will. And relying on his grace and his strength, we go out and do what he calls us to do. We obey him. 
So we keep our mouth shut when we're attacked. We turn the other cheek. We put others first. We give sacrificially. We, we say no to temptations and, and lust and, and the greed and the bitterness and things that we're tempted with all the time, the anger that wants to take control of us. And we say no to that and we say yes to him. That's an act of obedience and that's an act of worship and that takes surrender. But I can surrender because Jesus surrendered. He surrendered so I could be set free. He surrendered so that I could give myself to him. He wants me. My life's incomplete without him. That's why he died on the cross. And he did that for me and he did that for you. So I can surrender in obedience because Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he did that for us. But that surrender is also seen not just in obedience and temptation, but just in the whole idea of a witness. Because witnessing is worshiping. We think worshiping is, I do that on Sunday mornings at 10.30 and I sing real loud and I clap when there's beautiful music and I just say a prayer and all that, and that's worship. I do it on Sunday mornings between 10.30 and 12 noon. And witnessing, worshiping is really witnessing, it's testifying of what God has done. Remember what we said earlier is that, you know, whatever we think is worthy, we can't help but talk about Whatever we think is worthy, that's what we're really excited about. Whatever we think is worthy and worth it, we just spend our time thinking about all the, the great witnesses, the great people who are able to testify of God's saving grace in their lives are people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they can't help but talk about him. It's an act of worship. And so if you and I are struggling with sharing our faith, maybe really what we need to work on is not, I gotta learn this little outline on how to you know, tell these 10 verses to somebody and pray this prayer like this. Maybe really what I need to focus on is just how beautiful and glorious Jesus is, the lamb who was slain and yet still lives and has conquered. And I see his beauty and I just kinda let myself get caught up in with the beauty and majesty of Jesus that I can't help but talk about him. You know what Jesus did? You know what he's done for me? You know how he's changed me? Let me tell you about it. Do you mind? As a church, I think surrendering to Jesus and worshiping him is in this area of politics we need to be extremely careful not to align ourselves as an organization, as a group of Christians with one political party or another. I think instead we align ourselves with Jesus Christ and we constantly say, is what you're saying, is your agenda, is your platform consistent with what the agenda of Jesus is all about? And you say, well, where do we get the agenda of Jesus? Well, in the scriptures. <laughs> so we have to be constantly studying what the scriptures say. I mean, some of us vote Democrat because that's just what we've always done. We just vote Democrat, don't even think about it. Some of us vote Republican, that's all we, what we've always done. We don't even think about it. Some of us don't vote because we're so frustrated. Yeah, gotcha. But there's a time to, and a place to vote. There's a time and a place to pay your taxes. There's a time and a place to be a good neighbor. There's a time and a place to pray for those in authority. The agenda of Jesus is found in this book. And where a political party, wherever it is, whatever it is, lines up with the teachings of Jesus, we need to support it but never ever support a party that's contrary to the agenda of Jesus. So 
That's another area of worship and surrender. But then there are people here who have never trusted Christ and you're just kind of listening to this and you're kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I buy into this. I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own way. I just want to say to you that the message of this passage is this. Stop crying. In your heart of hearts, you know this world is broken and it's messed up. You know justice does not prevail at this point. You know that our political parties, our government agencies, our institutions of higher learning, our our businesses and industries, our cultures, our committees, our our societies, they have all failed and they have all let let us down and they all are often animated and ruled by things that are quite evil and contrary to God's will and God's plan. And you know it's not right. And you want it to be right. And you want to be part of that. And I say, yes, you do. Stop crying because the Lamb of God who died, who rose, who's conquered our greatest enemies. He is a lion. He is that towering tree, the root of David. He is worthy of your undivided loyalty and allegiance. Surrender to him. Stop crying. There is a Savior. You don't need to cry anymore. There is somebody who will take all that's broken and make it right, who will take every oppression and avenge it, who will definitely bring down the powers that oppress us and and, and lead us away from God and, and into evil. He will bring all that down and set up his kingdom of righteousness and glory. There is a lion, a lamb, who is our Savior. And he's worthy to open that scroll. And he's worthy of your worship and your faith and your trust. You can stop crying because this world will be made better because Jesus lives. He's conquered our enemies and he lives. I'd like to pray with you and I just want to invite you if you've never put your trust in Jesus to do so today. If you're saying, I want to know more about this, I'd really like to talk about it, I'd be glad to talk with you about it. After we pray, we're going to invite some folks who want to join the church to come up front here and do that. But uh, right now we're going to pray. So let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the great privilege of being in your presence. And thank you for your word, your truth. And I pray that you would now help us to surrender in worship to Jesus. Lord, help us to see that our hope is not in any political institution, not our government, not a party, not a platform. But it's in the lion, it's in the lamb, our Messiah, Jesus. He's the one who's worthy. Help us to surrender to him in obedience. Help us to surrender to him in witness and worship. Help us, Lord, not to cry anymore because there is one who's worthy of our worship. Help us give our total loyalty and allegiance to him. I ask and pray these things in the worthy one's name, our Lord Jesus. Amen.